Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. We have some very special news in a moment, but here's what else is going on uh, in the world today. Does Facebook need new faces? The company's facing criticism on so many fronts. Should Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg step aside and let new leadership come in? We'll discuss that. And hyperinflation. Jack Dorsey says it's here and it's going to change everything. Janet Yellen says inflation will get back to normal next year. So whom do you believe, the CEO or the Treasury Secretary? We'll ask David Zervos. And the war, the WAR, over the future of retail. Warby Parker, all birds rent the runway. They disrupted eyewear, footwear, and evening wear as they hit the public markets. Are these disruptors really a friend or a foe of traditional retail? But first, let's get the market number. So many headlines from Seema Modi today. Seema? But first, Kelly, from a scale of 1 to 10, how pumped are you for today's show? Maybe it's well. Go. Gotta love it. Three <laughs> hours left in trade. Good afternoon, everyone. Stocks are trading higher. The S&P 500 is up about 23 points. The Nasdaq higher by 133 as we prepare for a busy week of earnings. Facebook, Alphabet, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple all set to report earnings this week. That's a combined market cap of around $9 trillion. Bespoke pointing out this morning that in the past, when all five companies report earnings in the same week, Facebook and Google tend to perform best. Facebook out with numbers out, out after the bell, and the stock is trading down by around 4% in the month of October. Meantime, the energy trade continues to work for the bulls. Oil and gas ETF, take a look, hitting a fresh 52-week high today as oil prices continue to rip higher on dollar weakness and those ongoing concerns around the supply chain. Take a look at some of the biggest winners in the energy sector. You'll see it's Marathon Oil, Halliburton, up over 20% so far in the month of October. Kelly. I'm trying to concentrate. Yeah. Seema, thank you very much. Seema Modi. Tesla is hitting a new record high, surging 9% today for its best day since March and closing in on 1000 bucks a share. Here's the headline. That makes it a trillion-dollar market cap. We're just below that level. And the trading session right now, it's at 991. What's happened today? Bullish news from Hertz overshadowing some setbacks on the full self-driving ambitions that Tesla also harbors. Phil LeBeau is here to break it all down for us. And Phil, to my memory, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't we only pass above $900 billion on Friday? I think so, Kelly. It has wow. happened very quickly. And the $1 trillion market cap, it briefly pierced through that level. So it had a $1 trillion market cap very briefly, pulled back a little bit. Look, it's, whether it happens at the close today and it finishes above a trillion dollars, we're talking about a company with a trillion dollar market cap, essentially. And yet, as this is happening, and as the Tesla bulls are out there saying, here we go, this is the company that's going to transform, has already transformed the auto industry. There is a regulator in Washington who is saying, hold on a second. I'm not crazy about the full self-driving technology that Tesla has been promoting. Uh, they have a number of subscribers to their full self-driving technology. The NTSB chair, Jeff, Jennifer Hammondy, who has had numerous comments over the last several months regarding 
Tesla's use of the full self-driving technology, how it rolls it out in beta fashion, sending a new letter this morning to Elon Musk. And in that letter, she cites the NTSB investigations into previous accidents involving autopilot technology and their recommendations following those accidents. One of those, and this is some video uh, of that accident, happened in Delray Beach, Florida in 2019. And after that accident, they came out and they sent a letter to Tesla saying, look, we're not crazy that there are not enough safeguards with regard to full to uh, autopilot technology, both in terms of where it can be used and whether or not the driver can be engaged or can the driver just not be engaged and that Tesla should do more about that. So she writes in her letter this morning to Elon Musk, if you are serious about putting safety front and center in Tesla's vehicle design, I invite you to complete the action and safety recommendations we issued to you four years ago, because that was the first accident where the NTSB said, look, we think there should be some changes in the autopilot technology. By the way, as you take a look at shares of Tesla, keep in mind that the company in September said that it was going to start uh, having monitors, camera monitors facing the driver in the vehicle, one of the safeguards that they're going to be putting in touch or putting in place for their full self-driving technology, the latest version of which, by the way, rolled out this weekend, Kelly. They had some issues, pulled it back, then issued it again. But this is going to be an interesting situation developing when it comes to the full self-driving technology because the NTSB is not a regulator in terms of telling companies what they can do. That's NHTSA. NHTSA has been relatively quiet regarding what might happen or should happen or could happen when it comes it, to full self-driving technology. It's NHTSA that has the, the possibly the new advisor who on Twitter has been very hostile to Tesla. I mean, it's interesting, Phil, because a lot of the Tesla fans have been concerned about regulation turning against them right. on the full self-driving front. Um, it's almost like you could separate these stories into two buckets, even though they're all implied in the share price. Full self-driving on the one hand and, and just simply the demand for Tesla's on the other hand, and it really seems whether you look at the proportion of EV sales in China, what's been going on in Europe. Right. You know, they're not, if you look back at what when the stock really started to take off, it was after the latest earnings report. I mean, there was a lot of good news in that report for Tesla. Fan, fantastic news. If you are a Tesla investor, if you're a Tesla bull the last month has been great for you. You had better than expected deliveries in the third quarter. Your Q3 earnings blew away estimates. And now you have analysts like Adam Jonas from Morgan mm -hmm. Stanley saying, hey, look, forget about $1,000 a share. Make it $1,200 a share. And there are others who think it'll go much higher than that. So at least in the near term, you've got a clear runway here. If you look at shares of Tesla, it doesn't mean that they're going to continue going higher, but a lot of good news in the last month, and many believe it continues for a while. Yeah, and to Phil's point, Adam Jonas of Morgan Stanley this morning put out a note on Tesla, raising his price target to 1200 and saying that doesn't even imply any autonomy. So putting that to the side, even a constrained right. China, uh, and even implying roughly half the company's growth target. So you can imagine those who are bullish on all three of those would see something uh, even much higher. Phil, and then you get Hertz. And you get hurt. Yes, yes. And listen, there's a lot of people who wouldn't mind testing out whether they would like an EV or doing right. so in the rental space. Phil, we'll leave it there for now. I'm sure we'll see you again very, very soon. We appreciate it. Sounds Phil Lebeau is covering the story for us today. Let's talk now with Dan Ives. He's managing director of equity research at Wedbush. He has an outperform rating and an $1,100 price target on Tesla. Dan, uh, your bullishness has been proven prescient here time and again uh, on Tesla. What do you think, though, even of just the kind of parabolic lift in price action? Action over the past week or so? Yeah, it's a watershed moment. I mean, for Tesla, passing the trillion dollar 
Mark Cap, and I think when you look at that Hertz deal, I think that's a tipping point in terms of what we're seeing, bulk orders, 100,000 cars. It's part of this green tidal wave, and Phil hit on it. I think we're just starting to be in the early innings. What we view as a $5 trillion market, Tesla's just starting right now. Now capacity coming on. You know, we think this is just sort of the early innings of this plan out. Dan, explain to those who go, OK, I get why this is a watershed movement for EVs, but why should Tesla maintain such a price premium to the rest of the market? Well, I think Tesla has the battery technology moat, the supply moat in terms of gigas around the world. Now Berlin and Austin coming in. And then you look at just the brand and the cachet that Musk has built in terms of Tesla. That's why Hertz went to Tesla's. And that's why we see right now demand outstripping supply by about 10 percent for Tesla, because we've never viewed, and I know, you know we've talked about it, we never view Tesla as an automotive company. We view it as a disruptive technology player. That's why I continue to view this as a valuation. We have a $1,500 bull case. And I think now the streets are starting to appreciate the story. How much of autonomy do you have in your price target, whether it's the current $1,100 target or maybe the more bullish $1,500 target? Where does the full self-driving scope fall within those price targets? I mean, we have very minimal FSD in the 1500 about about $100 in terms of the bull case. That starts to get rolling. Of course, they have to work with regulators, and you know, there's definitely been a lot of issues there. I mean, that's where you could even start to be above 1500 And I think that's, that's really the story here for Tesla. We view it as the biggest transformation to the auto industry since the 1950s. It's not just Tesla. GM, Ford, and others are going to be, you know, come along the way as part of this green tidal wave. But I think what you're looking right now at, not just earnings. Remember, that profitability is massive now that we're seeing. You look at those deliveries with supply coming on. Yeah. I mean, this is really starting to just be a World Series performance. And as they said in the quarter, they think their automotive operating margins were over 30 percent, even excluding rebates. They're around 29 percent. So that was the highest yet. They have Austin and Berlin about to come online. And I I think it was also very telling the way that Volkswagen CEO invited Elon Musk to address his top 200 executives in a call about a week or maybe a week and a half ago. And you can hear the frustration with Herbert Deese, who wants his company to be at the forefront of this electric vehicle transition. And it almost feels like it's not happening quickly enough. And, you know, analysts have pointed out if Volkswagen just built a gigafactory from the time they first started bringing Elon Musk on, you know, calls and talking to the company to when they did last week, they could have made some serious progress, and yet that's not happening. So the rest of the auto industry has watched Tesla sort of build out its capacity. How quickly now can they catch up? Well, but it's what Mary's doing at GM and what you're seeing at Ford as well. It's not a zero-sum game. I mean, we think we go from 3% EVs to 10% by 2025 and over 20% by the end of the decade. So you're going to have many winners here not just Tesla. And that's what we're starting to see, just a massive transformation. But I think the one thing, this is a tipping point for EVs. And I think Tesla continues to sort of be the main play out there. And if I look at the last week, sort of this one-two punch that we saw with earnings and the Hertz news, this is really something that I think changed a lot of investor sentiment on the name. So final question to sort of look at this from either more the bearish point of view or the long-term point of view what happens now that it's already a $1 trillion company? You know, what are the biggest risks, uh, especially maybe highlighted by some of the full self-driving problems that have, uh, could maybe have a regulatory backlash there? Um, you know, does 2022 then become a year where sort of the actual production has to catch up to the trillion-dollar price target? 
Yeah, I think the biggest risk, they have to work with regulators on FSD. That's clear. China, that's 40% of deliveries going into next year. They got to play nice in the sandbox with Beijing in terms of the PR issues and other sort of safety issues they've had. But it comes down to supply. If Austin comes on, Berlin comes on. Remember right now, Tesla, they don't have a demand problem. They have a supply problem. All right. Thank you so much, sir. We really appreciate your joining you. us on very short notice today. Uh, just quite an incredible headline. Uh, just about one trading session after first punching above $900 billion. Tesla, a trillion-dollar company, Dan Ives from Wedbush, joining me to discuss that. Let's switch gears now, sort of talking uh, from, I don't know what we'll call it, new economy to old economy. Energy has been one of the hottest sectors of the market lately, but my next guess is the stocks are still trading at a 30 40% discount. Does that spell opportunity or caution? Joining me is David Wagner. He's a portfolio manager at Aptus Capital Advisors. David, it's great to have you. And it's kind of a letdown having to talk about, you know, old, uh, <laughs> old world stuff now. But people have called this the revenge of the old economy. And it's obvious that underinvestment is causing these uh, price spikes. I guess my question to you is, do I really want to buy equities um, in an area that has failed to deliver returns for investors over the past 10 years while Tesla is up like 20,000 percent or something? That's definitely a hot question right now. And Kelly, thanks so much for having me back on the show. I heard you say that you're a 12 out of 10 excited for this show at this hour. And of course, definitely not for me. You know, Phil, Dan, I are great conversation pieces. But yeah, you know, energy, you know, definitely feels kind of old age here. You know, Jed Clampa, probably from the Beverly Hillbillies, is definitely a happy camper today, you know, loving on that black gold uh, Texas tea. But, you know, from a serious perspective, you know, energy continues to mark all the three boxes that I look for in an investment. Technicals are definitely there. I believe the macros are there. And then from a fundamental side, well, the fundamentals from a valuation perspective have definitely been there for the last eight years. You know, you definitely haven't had the returns like you've had in a Tesla. And I think most traders right here would call us kind of late to the trade here that a lot of the easy money has been made. Right. But I don't agree at all. I think they're wrong. I think short term. Yeah, the sector looks a little bit overbought right now. You know, it looks like it could possibly take a little bit of a pause. But longer term, you know, we were very bullish on the entire sector, you know, specifically EMP. So why are we long term bullish? Well, right now, these companies are being priced at a 40 percent discount to the Ford 12 month strip pricing, which is like seventy four dollars, give or take, right. you know, a few dollars in 2022, meaning that they're pricing oil as if it's forty five dollars. And, right. you know, I don't think any of us here really on the show uh, you know, would expect oil to be close to $45 moving forward, especially when you're considering the, the environment right now where you're having substantial shortages as well as prolonged underinvestment in the space, you know, regarding new projects and yeah. development. So you know, we're big on energy right now. So let's go Texas Tea. Well, and, and maybe the way to sort of flip that around is that from your point of view, that means the stocks are going to catch up. But there's plenty of investors and in capital that's saying they're not sticking around to find out. Pioneer is a name that you like. And even Scott Sheffield has said he's not going to drill if the oil price is high. He's only going to drill if his stock price doubles. So even to him, it's an open question uh, if they're going to enjoy that kind of performance. So you'd stick with Pioneer here. You like ChemEd. Anywhere else that you would tell our investors if they want this exposure? No, you know, we love small caps. We love mid caps. We love quality. And Pioneer Natural Resources definitely kind of fits that bill. It's kind of more of a mid cap smaller, large cap, but definitely on the highest echelon of quality within energy. You know, we continue to view their deep inventory of high quality drilling locations in the core of the Midland Basin, 
you know, you couple that with this, the strength of its balance sheet, a long-term, you know, investment framework, which in our view should get this stock re-rated. Right. You're seeing a lot of these energy stocks trade at four times where, you know, historically they traded at six times. So, you know, I think the uh, investment rationale looks very simple in our opinion. All right. David, thank you very much uh, for joining us. And we'll definitely have you back on as we follow this story into early part of next year. We appreciate it today. David Wagner is with Aptus Capital Advisors. Still ahead, Facebook is coming off its sixth straight week of losses. Its longest losing streak as a public company, believe it or not. Shares are down 15 percent since the publishing of the journal's first Facebook files report. But with more damning documents coming to light, will the C-suite be able to advive, uh, survive? And what's the lasting ad impact for the marketing and app ecosystem? We're tracking the fallout. Plus, direct-to-consumer brand Allbirds announcing its IPO plans today. The latest direct-to-consumer named Join Warby Parker as a public company. And Rent the Runway starts trading on the NASDAQ on Wednesday. While they're all touted as disruptors, are they really? We'll dig into what we're calling the war over traditional retail. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. The shots keep coming for Facebook. Now the Facebook Papers, a series published by a group of 17 news outlets with leaked access, uh, access to leaked whistleblower documents. Uh, they started to trickle out on Friday. One of the whistleblowers, Francis Haugen, is also testifying in the U.K. today. So this, again, is a new data drop. Facebook responding to these papers today, saying in part, at the heart of these stories is a premise which is false. The truth is we've invested $13 billion and have over 40,000 people to do one job, keep people safe on Facebook. Now, Facebook shares are on pace for their longest weekly losing streak ever, and it's all ahead of their earnings after the bell. We're covering this, the fallout from the leadership to the ad impact, looking ahead to earnings. Paul Argenti is a professor of corporate communication at Dartmouth's Tuck School of Business, and Mark Douglas is a CEO of Mountain, a leading ad agency for streaming and connected TV. Paul, we'll start with you. And Facebook has been heavily criticized so far for their handling of all this publicity. What should they do now to try to change the narrative? Or is it too big a task for corporate communications? Well, I mean, it's going to have to be more than just corporate communication, Kelly, at this point, because the problem is much bigger than just a communication problem. I think it's a problem in terms of what they're actually doing. In the past, Facebook would kind of trot out an apology and do a mea culpa, and that was actually closer to what they probably should be doing than what they're doing now. Now they're focusing on more of a marketing strategy, trying to rebrand and use techniques that just aren't going to get them out of this hole. They need to really go back to basics, apologize for what they've done wrong, say they're looking into what happened and try to move ahead with more trust and more transparency. 
Does that mean that we need to hear it directly from Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg as a sort of we know and we're sorry and here's what we're doing now? Yeah, I mean, this is a full-blown crisis for them. I mean, you think about the number of news organizations involved, the amount of information and, and the way their own image has been going steadily downhill starting back in 18. I think, yes, you need the CEO, you need the top leaders. The problem is neither of them have any credibility anymore, particularly him. And I think this is a bigger problem for them in terms of leadership. Where do they go from here is a really big question in my mind. You know, Mark Zuckerberg is talking a lot about the metaverse. They're reportedly going to rebrand the company, if The Verge is correct about that, uh, in that direction. Is, is the best he can do to just move on to these new digital worlds that are forming? I mean, do they need to fix the trust issue before they move into that paradigm? I think they need to move, you know, fix the trust issue before they do anything. I mean, if your credibility is shot, your reputation is shot. And your reputation is the most valuable asset that you have. Trying to rebrand and come up with a new approach to how you're doing business in the face of a crisis like this is like, you know, pushing a big ball uphill. It's just not going to work. It's, it's going to go in the other direction. And I have a real, really strong feeling that they just don't understand basic strategic communication tactics. So final question, Paul, because we're about to talk about their strength and domination as an advertising platform. Doesn't that speak for itself? You know, for all that we all say about it, you know, I always give the example of how I use their buy nothing page all the time. Um, You know, I'm on Instagram all the time, you know, so we can all say, oh, yeah, Facebook. Yeah, man, what a company. But until the facts change, why should the company really worry so much about all this corporate communication that, as you say, they've sort of botched? Yeah, you're not managing your reputation for just this moment in time. You're managing it for the future. And I think as people become increasingly hostile towards the company in terms of its reputation, you'll see effects starting with they won't be able to recruit or keep the best people, which we're already seeing. They won't be able to attract the kinds of advertisers who they really want. And it'll just steadily erode. Yeah, could they keep that up for a while? Sure. Would you want them to? No, it would be just about the worst strategy you could possibly follow. It might be the strategy that a financial advisor would give them because they're making money, Mm -hmm. but it certainly isn't my advice. Very, very interesting. Paul, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Paul Argenti. So as I mentioned, plenty of investors are sticking with Facebook because of its success in advertising, and that's going to be a big part of the discussion around earnings tonight. Should we expect this dominance to last or not? Joining me is Mark Douglas. He is the CEO of Mountain. It's a leading ad agency for streaming and connected TV. Mark, what would you say about uh, the risks around the strength of their core advertising platform? Um, I don't see many risks at the moment. I think the average side, the thing to remember is Facebook doesn't really sell ads. They match consumers, the people using that platform with the brands that want to deliver products to them. And there's really no place else to go for advertisers except for paid search. Now streaming's coming online and, and playing a role there. But there are literally millions of businesses dependent on Facebook to reach consumers. And those businesses are not going to stop spending with Facebook today. It's going to take an actual impact to, to their business for that to happen. So let's go through the case we just heard from Paul Argent point by point then when he says this is a problem for them for the long run it's going to affect their talent uh, attractiveness it's going to hinder their ambitions in the metaverse or whatever their plans are going forward what do you say in response to that well i think that is true i mean in terms of attracting the best talent 
Um, you know, people are worried about their individual, you know, basically reputations, mm -hmm. and they might have pressure from family. But Facebook is a big company. It pays extremely well. And I think they'll be able to retain most of the talent they need to continue to manage and grow their business. So that's not a short-term impact to the business, although it is somewhat of a long-term risk. You think there's literally nowhere else to go? We always say, like, investing in the stock market these days, Tina, there is no alternative are you saying that genuinely there is no alternative to advertising on Facebook? If you are what's referred to as a direct response advertiser, you spend all the money you can on paid search and all the money you can on paid social. And when it comes to paid social, it's nearly all Facebook and Instagram. You know, Snapchat is, is definitely coming up, but it's $84 billion in revenue or more compared to $2.5 billion for Snapchat. There is literally no place for those advertisers to go other than Facebook. So final quick question, because we saw, the, we saw this big impact to Snap and even Facebook on Friday after Snap's earnings revealed a big hit from this Apple tracking that they won't let happen anymore. What do you make of that issue? Is that just a short-term headwind? Well, it indicates a longer-term problem. So the, the Apple change referred to as um, IDFA and the ability to get to mobile device IDs, it's not really a big problem for Facebook because you're logged into Facebook on your phone, probably on your computer, and all these devices. So they're not dependent on Apple to know who you are. Where it comes into play is knowing what you're doing across devices, and maybe some of those devices you're not logged in. But it's not a material issue for Facebook. Um, it's more of an issue for Snap because Snap just simply doesn't know much about you. Facebook has so much more information from Snap, and they have the ability to identify who you are based on your device. It's very interesting. Maybe suggest why apps might move in the direction of wanting a more direct relationship uh, with their users from now on. Mark, a great insight. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Mark Douglas from Mountain. Again, Facebook reports after the bell today. Coming up with bottlenecks breaking every link in the supply chain, we'll speak with the head of one company working to fix freight problems with technology. And speaking of costs, Jeffrey's chief market strategist David Zervos joins us with his hot take on hyperinflation and whether faith is restored in the Fed after the central bank's new ethics rules. As we head to break, here's a look at the S&P 500 heat map. Some of the names hitting new highs include Netflix, AutoZone, Lowe's, Coslo, Costco, and of course, Tesla. Back in a moment. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at Chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back, everybody. Just off session highs, Dow is up 110. It's currently up 92. That's a quarter percent gain. But Nasdaq is outperforming today. It's up nine tenths of a percent. The S&P is up half a percent. Tesla is over a trillion dollars more on that in a second. Let's check the sectors where energy is leading after posting its sixth straight week of gains. Here are some of the biggest movers at this hour. Um, not huge energy materials up about one and a half percent. Elsewhere, Moderna is getting a nice bump after announcing its COVID vaccine produced a strong immune response in six to 11 year olds. The company will submit the results to health regulators in the U.S. and Europe for authorization. Shares are up four and a half percent to around 341. Kimberly Clark is on pace for its lowest close since April of 2020. 
They missed earnings expectations. They lowered guidance, saying results were negatively impacted by, oh, you guessed it, significant inflation and supply chain disruptions emanating from China. KMB is down 3% today. And look at Tesla. This stock crossed the $1 trillion market cap at the top of the hour. It's currently around 994 I think I mean, we'll have to check, but it's pretty much around the $1,000 mark that we hit that trillion dollar market cap. So just a hair below that level with a 9.4% gain right now after only crossing above $900 billion on Friday. And there you can see market cap, $999 billion. Over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. And here's what's happening at this hour. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin says that a deal is possible this week on President Biden's big spending plan. Manchin says that he's open to any tax that would ensure people pay their fair share towards infrastructure improvements. With all those T's and I's and everything, you know, crossed and dotted. That'll be difficult from the Senate side because we have an awful lot of, of uh, text to go through. But as far as conceptually, we should. I really believe it'll, you know, and just have a lot of good faith. So in do it. you think there'll be a framework agreement? I think a framework thing? should be. It really should be. And in California, 100,000 customers still without power, many of them around San Francisco Bay. Severe storms have dumped record rainfall. And on the news, what is still ahead for Southern California as wildfire concerns are replaced by flash flood alerts? That's tonight at 7 Eastern. And in Spain's Canary Islands, the volcanic eruptions that have been going for five weeks are stronger than ever. New areas are now in danger after the partial collapse of the volcano's crater. Officials are watching to see what direction a new river of lava will take, as are people who live in that area, I'm sure. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you very much, Rahel Solomon. Up next, it's Jack versus Janet. Dorsey voices inflation concerns while Secretary Yellen downplays them. Who's right? And with November's meeting around the corner, what is the Fed's next move? And as we head to break, take a look at Digital World Acquisition Corp. This is the company taking President Trump's media group public via SPAC. Only up about 1% today, coming off an 857% gain last week. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Inflation isn't going away anytime soon, or is it? The answer depends on who you ask. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey tweeting, quote, hyperinflation is going to change everything and that he sees it escalating around the globe. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen disagreed yesterday, dismissing the idea that inflation has gotten away from the government. I don't think we're about to lose control of inflation. I agree, of course, we are going through a period of inflation that's higher than Americans have seen in a long time. And it's something that's obviously a concern and worrying them. But we haven't lost control. Joining me now with his take is David Zervos. He is Jeffrey's chief market strategist. David, it's great to have you back today. I tend to think of you as more of a deflationist uh, generally, but what does that mean in the current landscape? Well, I think, Kelly, it's, uh, it, I think Janet kind of I said it as well as I could have. I, I think the idea that we're losing control of it after coming out of a decade where we couldn't generate inflation toward 2%, uh, in fact, I think we averaged something like 1.3 or 1.4 uh, over that last decade before COVID with one of the best labor markets in 50 years. I, I think it's it's a really tough sell to say that we're going into something like a significant period of a, even even much higher than 2% inflation or even modestly higher than 2% inflation. I'm sort of still stuck in the uh, the camp that Charlie Evans seems to be stuck in, which is that none of these supply disruptions 
uh, really tell me that we have the tools yet to be able to, <clears throat> excuse me, generate that north of 2% inflation on a sustained basis. So I think people are way ahead of themselves. And in particular, Jack Dorsey's very smart guy, great tech guy. I'm not sure <clears throat> I look to him for my inflation you know, I th- I'm, the way I'm trying to think about it is, and I think Jeff Curry has been very good on this uh, over at Goldman, talking about physical demand for commodities. It is structurally higher. He talks about the super cycle because we've had so much, uh, you know, sort of reallocation of goods towards the lower income population, which is so numerous. But if we don't have an increase in supply, are we just getting price hikes? In other words, how sustainable is it? If you increase demand 20 percent globally, let's say you can increase supply 20 percent, then do you end up in a recession? I mean, Kelly, let's put it all in perspective, right? GDP, which is where supply meets demand, uh, is basically just a little bit above where it was in Q4 of 2019. We're back to GDP levels of where we were uh, just before the crisis. So we really haven't grown in six quarters. So this idea that we have some sort of mega demand shock, kind of weird to me. I mean, we're, we're in a flat growth period for over one and a half years. We turned off the economy, then we turned it back on. And what we're finding is, as we turn it back on, it's a lot harder to get everything back in place uh, quickly. And I think in particular, in a world where our preferences have changed for many goods over services. And that's just the nature of the beast when you try to turn something back on relatively quickly. I also say, Kelly, we're all turning on kind of at the same time. So it's not like there's a dispersed cycle where Europe's going down, we're going up. Right. Bill's going down, we're going up, or vice versa. And, and that should add to some additional pressures. I'm, I'm okay with the pressures. I'm, I'm kind of excited about them. I think I'd love to see bond yields get back above two, even two and a quarter percent. I think that would be a great opportunity to use them once again as a hedge for risk asset loans. You want to buy them. In other words, you think that you yeah. know, if they went up back up to those levels, that they would then slide back down or, or sort of stay in that range. Um, let me, I mean, I have eight other questions that I, I really want to ask you theoretically, but let me boil this down for everybody who's watching. Are you still, I don't know if I would say bearish on stocks, Dave, but you've no. long had sort of a long S&P 500 with a hedge of something in bond land. And lately you seem to be much more cautious about things in part because of your worries about the Fed. Yeah, look, I think that that's right. Uh, you know, we had three great quarters uh, riding our risk asset longs, you know, up 16, 17%. We've obviously had a big run up now, another four or 5% beyond that, um, where we weren't participating. And, and really, Kelly, it comes down to transition at the Fed. Uh, I think the odds of a, of a reappointment for, for Jay have gone down. The scandal is still ongoing. He tried very hard to put some strong, rather draconian rules in place. Uh, on trading late last week. But, um, you know, we have a Democratic administration that probably would rather have a Democrat in charge going into the midterms and into 2024. Maybe not, but the risks around uh, leadership changes at the Fed have always been quite tricky, going all the way back to Alan Greenspan, whether it was Janet, whether it was Ben Bernanke, whether it was Jay himself. Uh, And we're going into a period where communication around inflation is tricky because of what we were just talking about. Sure, All that conspires to sort of say, hey, you know, it's been a great double digit, almost 20 percent year. Do we really want to fight that that story that if the Fed does make a, a, a big change or the administration makes a big change in the Fed, uh, do we want to be there for some of the turmoil that that might cause? I know it's not on the market's radar now, yeah. but uh, and that is it will be. And I th- think it sounds like you're sort of moving to the sidelines on stocks. But because you're not worried about hyperinflation for you, there's no opportunity cost. A lot of people are worried to get out because they think they're going to fall behind. 
Yeah, I, I don't think there's a big fall behind risk. I, I think, you know, we've had a 12 years of Jeffries. I probably spent three months on the sidelines right. out of the whole 12 years. So I'm not going to lose too much sleep over it. I, I, I think, you know, maybe I'm making a little bit more than I should out of the uh, Federal Reserve. But I'm, you know, Kelly, I'm kind of disappointed in an institution that, you know, I, I, I held in very high esteem. Not, uh, not like many of the guests on here that like to bash the Fed. I think the Fed's done an amazing job throughout both of our crises. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can criticize certain times when they've been too slow or, 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 uh, or made a couple mistakes here and there. But generally, I just don't like when they open themselves up to the ethical issues that they brought to the forefront. And that increases the risk for politicization of the Fed, something that, uh, that could be quite tricky to handle for the stock market. It's not a long-term change. Yeah. Still don't have any big views that somehow we're going into a, a major recession, have a good growth call for next year. Don't see a lot of risks on the inflation side that are, are, are more than just temporary. So waiting, waiting to see how this administration picks the new Fed so I can understand what my backstop is yeah. when I buy it. And still Team Janet in the, uh, in the inflation battle in that sense. Well, I'll, I'll just see Janet back at the Fed. That would be the best thing that could ever happen. <laughs> but that, that would be the biggest confidence boost uh, for me that you could have. Very interesting. David, always appreciate your perspective. Thanks for your time today. David Zervos of Jeffries. Up next, we're looking at the war on retail and how online brands are making what's old new again. Stay with us. The direct-to-consumer retail space is making some pretty big market moves. Warby Parker just debuted. All birds filed to go public today. And Rent the Runway starts trading on Wednesday. The street liking what it sees in Warby so far since it started trading about a month ago. Three bullish initiations today alone. No sells so far. And the shares are up about 4.5% right now. This all has us thinking, despite starting online, all three of these brands have physical locations now. So is the future of retail actually brick and mortar? Joining me now is somebody who certainly thinks so. Simeon Siegel is BMO Capital Markets Senior Retail Analyst. Simeon, I don't want to put, make too much of the brick and mortar thing, but you are pointing out that direct-to-consumer has its challenges today. Why is that? Yeah, I'm not making any friends here, Kelly. How's it yeah. going? Uh, <laughs> so... Or on the other hand, maybe I am, right? I think that what's so interesting, and you and I have talked about this before, is on the one hand, brick and mortar is an easy way to make money. And I say easy, I obviously don't, I'm oversimplifying, but you pay once, you pay your rent, and then every incremental dollar, you make money on that. The problem with e-commerce is e-commerce is continually variable. But I think what's even more than that, so that's the conversation you and I have had historically. Mm -hmm. What's even more was my team did this study, took us about six months, and we realized you actually can make money selling through wholesale. And that's, yes. I think, this idea where everyone's pivoting away. Right. But at the end of the day, the biggest brands, the healthiest brands, they got there by embracing this view of retail that we're, we're easily calling dead. It's really not. Give me VF Corp as an example of that. Yeah. So listen, VF Corp last week reported an increase in direct like everyone else. So this isn't me picking on VF, just using them as an example because they just did. And yet where they reported the increase in direct the total profitability, the margins were worse. And I think it's this interesting forest and trees conversation where everyone assumes that if I sell it directly and I eliminate the middleman, right, that has been the line for DTC, Mm -hmm. for direct-to-consumer, has been eliminate the middleman and you will make more money. And what we're finding out is the middleman serves serves a purpose. And that purpose actually drives higher revs, 
higher sales. It also drives higher profits. And we saw that with VF and we've seen it with a lot of other very large businesses. So this comment, which is fascinating, would have obvious implications for a company like Allbirds and maybe thinking about how they could go wholesale or how they could go, you know, brick and mortar and partner up. What about companies like Warby and Rent the Runway, which seem to be vertically integrated? It just sort of just where that that marginal investment dollar should go. I think the fascinating thing is we had this buzzword called Omni, and then everyone gave up that buzzword called Omni, right? It was Omni-channel, and we all moved on. But what we have to remember is Omni still means more than one, right? Omni sort of became e-commerce in people's minds, and the whole point is have it all. So when you think about these new brands, it's interesting, right? The companies you're mentioning are essentially embracing stores. They're essentially embracing the retail model that they disrupted. So at the end of the day, I think what we're acknowledging is that to become a big business, because at the end of the day, these are very loud businesses. They're very vocal. We've kind of created a very impressive platform behind these businesses, but they're far from the largest of businesses. So to scale up, scaling up involves following the path that others have outlined in the past. And so I think we're going to see all of these businesses embrace stores. But I think if you're in the board right now, the really important conversation is figuring out, is it just a question of brick and mortar versus digital? Or is it also a question of recognizing that being vert- vertically integrated has tremendous benefits. It allows you to own the brand. It allows you to own the customer. True. But at the end of the day, does it keep you at a certain threshold the same way that e-commerce did? And I think that's going to be a conversation we're going to be having for years to come now. Yeah. That was the biggest surprise. And it's to me, you know, I, to me, it's sort of like the kids are going to be all right. <laughs> you know, these micro observations about, you know, marginal profit dollars suggest that physical retail is going to be OK. Traditional shopping centers are going to be OK. I mean, th- this is a really fascinating insight, Simeon, into a talking point that much of the culture likes to talk about as if, you know, we're all just going to be buying online for the rest of our lives. I think right now there's this barbell, right? Like there's always a barbell. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. And I think that if you're the largest of brands, simply walking away from department stores, simply walking away from wholesale is a mistake. Yeah. That, that's how you got to where you were. So if you're in that boardroom, figure out how to in- incorporate it all, right? Figure out how to figure out where you should be, where you should go. But on the same token, on the other side of that barbell, if you're a smallest of brand, you're being taught because everything we are teaching everyone, the word is go direct, do not go wholesale. And I think that's a mistake. So and I think there's some interesting brands that are small there, there's that, that are embracing wholesale and they're selectively right They're They're figuring out where will be the brand elevating opportunity. Mm-hmm. Those are brands that I think will scale up nicely. And, and I that, think that that's barbell yeah. is And we talked about sort of the revenge of the old economy. Again, Macy's Kohl's look at their performance series. Talk to Jan Niffen about the same phenomenon. He agrees with you and says this is a real thing. Uh, and maybe using figuring out how to leverage those platforms becomes an important part of growth for even these disruptors. Simeon, thanks for joining us today. Great to see you. Simeon Siegel with BMO Capital Markets. Still ahead as supply chain snarls persist, companies are getting creative with their shipping methods. How one freight carrier is using technology and shared truckloads, kind of like Uber Pool, to speed up delivery times. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. Here's a quick check on shares of Tesla, which are up about 9.2% right now to sit at a market cap of $998 billion. We did punch through the $1 trillion mark uh, just about an hour ago, as Tesla only punched through $900 billion for the first time last week. We'll trade it coming up on Power Lunch. But first, one company is working to fix freight problems using technology to matchmake. That's next on The Exchange.
Welcome back. A shortage of truck drivers continues to cripple supply chains. It's estimated the U.S. is short 80,000 drivers right now. One company trying to ease the pain, Flock Freight. They connect businesses to share truckloads to avoid unused space. They ranked 42 on this year's CNBC Disruptor 50 list and just passed the billion-dollar valuation mark. And they're pledging to stay carbon neutral. For more on how Flock Freight is disrupting the logistics industry, let's welcome in CEO Oren Zeslansky. Oren, welcome. And could this technology be widely deployed right now if there were sort of an executive order to fix supply chain problems? Uh, thanks for having me this morning. Um, you know, I had never thought about it that way. <laughs> I'm pretty consumed with scaling the firm um, and continuing to bring our products and services to the country. Um, you know, there, there are some real challenges. There, there's the driver shortage that you've mentioned. Um, and, and additionally, there are, um, I think, understanding the context of the landscape of the U.S. transportation industry, it's enormously fragmented. Uh, and on the one hand, that makes for a great marketplace, and that's created opportunity for flock freight to thrive. And at the same time, with that level of fragmentation, you're always looking for those points of aggregated volume. How in which can I can I technologically uh, integrate and engage? Uh, there really isn't a simple or fast way to do that. I, I guess, unfortunately, I, I think we're a pretty audacious firm at Flock in terms of trying to do our part to save the world. Sure. I would say uh, probably not, though. It is something that has to be invented, something that has to be built. It's, it's just simply going to take a few Tell years. Tell me what's, what sort of market problem your technology fixes. Yeah, our mission is to fundamentally change the way freight moves in this country by creating shared truckloads. Without our technology, uh, people are often kind of horrified to hear this, that manufactured goods, pallets of tables, chairs, food uh, technology move from terminal to terminal, kind of slowly making their way cross country. With our technology, uh, instead of having eight trucks and eight drivers, so to speak, in the old paradigm, with our technology, it's one driver, one truck, always making sure that trucks are full, which is, of course, the sustainability uh, commitment that we've made that um, in ensuring that all trucks are full all the time, we're not burning diesel fuel and therefore creating greenhouse gas. So could your technology remove the need for, say, four to five truck drivers? Um, absolutely. I mean, it, it was sort of a yes and a no, right? What we're trying to do is make sure that the trucks are full all the time. I don't, I don't think, no matter how wildly successful Flock Freight is, uh, we're probably always going to have a shortage of truck drivers in this country. But I do think what's possible is often right now, for instance, what you're seeing at the port of Long Beach and, and in uh, San Pedro is, you know, 10, 10 loads of freight that need to be picked up for one truck driver uh, that's available. Unfortunately, probably a third of those truck loads that are waiting to be picked up are only about 50 to 60% full loads. Wow. You could imagine if we could make sure that all the trucks are full all the time, you may need um, only you know uh, seven trucks uh, against that uh, 10 loads. We're still gonna have a driver shortage, yeah. but we can see increased velocity in the supply chain. It's really interesting that if you could just require all the trucks to be full, that that might uh, go a long ways towards getting things moved around. Oren, thanks so much for explaining that uh, and for joining us. We hope to check in soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oren Zeslansky. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.